As forewarned by email this morning, we're in planning to work through John 13 and through to John 17 in the next seven weeks. We'll just get into it this morning and then we'll five off into John 20 next week with Easter, but then we'll come back and carry on. So the uh, yeah, in two weeks' time we'll be back in John 14. So covering a fair chunk of scripture in each uh, Sunday, but if you're in the Word, because I'll tell you what we're in, you can be studying and really feeding off it. So I've entitled it Christ's Call to Radical Loving Service. And from our Sunday, our Bible study discussions, we possibly could have added some other words in there like glorifying God and uh, humility. But uh, Lynn stole my thunder right from the start and she got loving service there. And there's much talk about radicals today. Unfortunately, the talk is mostly referring to radicals in the negative sense. And according to the Cambridge Dictionary, radical means believing or expressing the belief that there should be great or extreme social or political change. Jesus made it clear to Pontius Pilate that he was not at all interested in politics. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. But over and over again, he taught the need for extreme social change. So our passage for today, John 13, gives us an eyewitness account of Jesus Christ teaching and commanding his disciples to live a life of radical love and service. So a few questions to keep in your mind, which we teased out a little bit in that Bible study. What does he mean by love? The world's got their perception and sort of feelings about what love is. Uh, Very different, I might suggest, to what Christ means when he talks about love. And flowing out of that question, question is, how should I love? Or how should we, as a corporate body or a family in Christ, how should we love? So we'll find some answers to those questions in John 13 by looking at Christ's example of loving three kinds of people uh, in this passage. The first kind of people that he talked about loving was one another, lovingly serving one another. Okay, so... Going to our passage in John 13, it says in verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So verse 1 is telling us when this is happening. It's happening just before a Passover feast, which is important for the we know that Christ is about to fulfill a whole lot of Old Testament prophecy, and particularly one regarding the Passover lamb. But it's also important for us to realise that we're not really two-thirds of the way through the book of John here, John chapter 13 out of 21 chapters, but already we're at the night of Christ's betrayal. So a lot more is written about these last few hours of Christ's life and his resurrection than... Uh, or proportionally to to the other parts of his teaching. And as I alluded to in my introduction last week, or trying to uh, 
generate some interest. This is Christ's final night with his disciples. Jesus himself is within 15 hours of an agonizing death. Uh, and these are his last words. And Hamish brought out in the Bible study too that the number of times he said truly, truly, which is, is his way of emphasizing, look, this is important. You need to grasp this. And really it's a similar atmosphere to when a terminally ill person goes home to family. Uh, the family knows what's going to happen and they're there with them. Uh, still the disciples seem to be not quite grasping. They've had all the information, all the knowledge. Christ has told them again and again he's going to be crucified, but still they haven't processed that information uh, clearly where they realise, okay, he's going to be crucified, he's going to be three days and three nights in the grave and then he's going to rise. They, they've been told, but they haven't comprehended it. So the atmosphere here is is quite intimate. There's no Pharisees here, there's no fighting, no arguing, no religious people for, uh, for conflict there. And he's preparing the disciples for his crucifixion. Whereas a loving servant, he died for your sin and for my sin. In verse 2 we read, During supper... Again, supper of eating meals is an intimate time together. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Again, this is pertinent to the timing. Judas is still there. Uh, this, this man who's going to really betray him, even betray him with a kiss, is still there. And many of you will have been betrayed in some way or another, Probably not with a kiss, and probably not to the point where it cost you your life. Well, definitely not, because we're all still here. Verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, so this is no surprise, he's still in control. Uh, he hasn't uh, lost his his divinity or anything like that. Uh, he's, he's still powerful. He's still the Most High God. But in spite of that, verse 4, he rose from supper. He laid aside his garments, taking a towel, wrapped it around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now this is a shocking act. And yeah, we can often read over it and not grasp how shocking it was. Here we've got the rabbi, uh, who he, Peter, and sort of speaking for the other disciples, has said, "You are the Christ." We've got the rabbi, the Son of God, the Creator of the universe, taking the despised position, the physical appearance, and the practice of a household slave. And I was trying to sort of connect this to our world today. You know, what's the equivalent? And uh, I think, well, maybe think of the the image of uh, the Queen coming to a large public event in New Zealand, and so many uh, people at this event. There's a whole lot of portaloos outside, and the Queen disappears for a while. 
despite the bodyguards trying to keep an eye on her, but she disappears and people go, well, we haven't seen the Queen for a while. And someone goes out and they find the Queen out there, greased in overalls with bits and pieces on her by now, cleaning the toilets. And what would our reaction be? Is our, still our head of state cleaning the toilets and overalls? And we'd say, no, don't do that. Please don't do that. Um, yeah, it would be it would be an affront to our hospitality and, and everything that we're trying to honour and uh, uh, recognise for her position as head of state. And so Jesus taking this um, this form of a slave who were despised, often they were um, uh, non-Jewish people as well, some Jewish slaves, slavery was a bit different to today, but Jesus is going, he's, he's actually still on his way down. He's gone from being the king of glory uh, to being born a baby. Now he's kneeling down, washing dust off the feet of some fishermen and tax collectors. Uh, but it's going to get worse in the next 15 hours. He's going to go even lower. Peter can't handle it with this state. It's just too shocking. So culturally, we've got to make that bridge from 2,000 years later. Uh, most of us Kiwis would not have a big issue with washing someone's feet. Um, but... Yeah, back then, it's what it represented. Uh, it was saying he was no better than a slave. Verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And so, Peter's got a bit of an issue here, and he represents, I think, the world's thinking. Or, and even the majority of the church is thinking. And maybe yours and my thinking. Where servanthood and humility is seen as weakness. It's what it was seen in the ancient world. The Romans despised weakness. Uh, and so Jesus is really doing something that's not good for his, his image here. And it's the same today. Uh, leaders and business would not take that form of a slave. You know, they'll, they'll deliberately power dress, you know, with suits with big shoulders on them and and, you know, with the right cars and everything to build up their mana. Uh, and uh, recently at our Waitangi celebrations, our Prime Minister, uh, good honour, great wisdom and insight there, she, she uh, got behind the barbecue and fed sausages to children. But that was unusual. Uh, and I think it was probably deliberate and well thought out. She... Uh, might have learned something from her, was it Mormon upbringing? But that's unusual. That's the first time I can ever remember a Prime Minister of New Zealand uh, getting on the barbecue and serving children at Waitangi. So that's really what we're, we're seeing here. And, and Peter found that very uncomfortable. Uh, and maybe it touched his pride. Uh, maybe he felt a bit shamed because he hadn't washed it, the other disciples' feet too. Going on verse 7, Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. So at this point Jesus is shifting things a little bit. Uh, until now Peter's probably thinking, hey, this is just a, 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 a practical lesson on something in servanthood, but now Jesus is shifting it to saying, hey, 
there's something spiritual going on. There's a spiritual lesson behind this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you shall have no share with me. And this, where, yeah, obviously there's, there's a meaning here beyond just getting dust off feet. And Jesus is really saying we must humble ourselves and accept Christ's service to us first. And remember, Judas is still present. Judas didn't humble himself. He didn't accept that washing. Uh, We, each of us, have to accept that washing. Our pride, our humanity doesn't want to say, I need you to do something for me, but uh, that's what must happen. Judas may have accepted the foot washing, uh, but he refused the spiritual cleansing that Christ offered. He could have gone for that forgiveness. The the gunman from Christchurch can go for that same forgiveness at any point. Judas would have heard it over and over again. Uh, Jesus talked about forgiveness and the price being paid for sins, and yet Judas said, no, I'm not going to allow that spiritual cleansing. I reject that. I'm going to do things my way. So there's this cleansing going on and Christ says we need to be cleansed. And there's other scriptures uh, that interpret that for us and help us understand what Jesus is talking about by this washing. And if I could just quote 1 uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Uh, Got to put my hand up. Yeah, nailed there. Such, yeah, I fit. Such were some of those things. That's, That's me. But, contrasting, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So there is cleansing there, there is forgiveness available. Uh, Christ saying to Peter, you need that cleansing. And Judas would have picked up on the lesson too that something spiritual is going on here and he needs the cleansing of Jesus Christ in his life if he's going to enjoy the kingdom of God and the washing of the believer was not just at salvation Uh, our washing is not just a one off event Uh, it's not just if you like uh, in the baptism process uh, where physically there's water running off us representing something spiritual, but it's also ongoing. I won't give you won't go into all the passages, but it's through his word, John fifteen three, Ephesians five twenty six, and his Holy Spirit who's is involved in that washing. And we must also at times humble ourselves and accept not just Christ's love, but often other people's love and other people's service to us. If I can bring up that family, please. Uh, 
I love bragging on the saints. And this family is a, in a quite a remote part of Vanuatu on the island of Malakula and a village called Pinaloom. And yeah, up there we've got Elder Rodney, uh, who's also the chief in the village, and his wife Ruth, Sylvan, Resard, Flora, Pauline, Davina, Mandy. And uh, I mention all their names because I want them to be world famous in Hamilton. Okay? So when we were visiting this family and staying with them in their very humble abode, and on the day before we left, we didn't realise what was going on. But next slide, Hamish. They discovered that we we really enjoyed these nungai nuts, palm nuts. So they're in a very hard shell, and these kids would get a stone on another stone, they'd bash, 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 bash until this until the the nut finally cracked, and then they'd get the kind of it's like a very soft cashew nut. It's quite milky. They'd get that out. And then they'd put it inside a piece of bamboo and they'd ram it all. And so it went into this nice paste. And then you could walk around with your piece of bamboo with a stick uh, eating this, this nungai nut. So by the time the, the last day came along, they realised that these white fellas liked this, this nungai nut. They spent all day sitting under trees, um, gathering these nuts, crack, 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 and we're thinking, man, you know, well, sort of not really noticing it too much, but noticing, yeah, they'd spent most of the day cracking these nuts. Comes the time for us to leave, and they give us a big plastic bag full of it, plus a few bamboo sort of prepackaged ones. Uh, yeah, almost too much nungai for us to eat. And that came at a huge, you know, there was probably 30 hours of labour in that. And that's, yes, that's humbling. Uh, that shows up our lack of hospitality for our guests. I've never, never done that for our guests. Rosemary might spend a few hours in the kitchen, but nothing like that. So yes, it's humbling, and they did bless us. So there is a blessing, verse 17 says, for everyone who does this. And I hope they were blessed. I know they're blessed, but they certainly... Uh, I went there, part of the reason we went was to teach, but boy did they teach me a lesson, and boy do we need to learn off them. Uh. So verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet also, but my, also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean. You are clean, but not every one of you. So culturally, Jesus is saying in the physical, yeah, once you've had a bath and you walk to someone else's place and get your feet dirty, you don't need to have another bath. When you get there, you just need to wash your feet. But we would say there's something spiritually going on here too. Yeah, as a Christian, we don't uh, we don't need that, um, that full born again uh, sanctification or cleansing because that was a one-off event. We can't lose that. Uh, but we certainly need to clean ourselves up from time to time. Uh, for me, it's at least once a day, sometimes more than once a day. I've got to get those, uh, um, got to repent of those things that are causing problems. 
And Jesus said that, it says in verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So, yeah, Judas is still not clean here. Jesus knows who's, who the betrayer is, but even the disciples can't pick him at this point. And good principle there. Uh, let's not try and pick the, uh, the ones that aren't quite in the right place in the church. I think we'll be very surprised when we get to heaven. I think there'll be some people there where I say, wow, didn't expect to see you here. And there'll be others where I go, hang on, where's so-and-so? I haven't seen so-and-so. Didn't make it. Weren't, weren't a believer. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So here we get his, his thrust, his purpose here. This is for an example for us to follow. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So yeah, he's our Lord. He's the one we follow. And he's the one we should emulate. Uh, this should be normal culture for the, for the church in New Zealand. Uh, not necessarily physically, literally washing feet, but acting in loving service. And yet, uh, in many cases, it's far from it. Verse 18, I'm not speaking of all of you. Again, he's talking about Judas. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So Jesus is giving us this example here in Matthew eleven twenty nine. He says, Take my yoke upon me, upon you, and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So again, Christ's exhorting us, take on that humility. As we do, uh, yeah, we find rest for our souls. It's a, it's a bit of a relief when you can stop trying to promote yourself and stop trying to build your own pride and your own respect. So the teaching is clear and profound, but I think it's so countercultural that we usually miss it. Maybe we don't want to meditate on it. Uh, the secular humanistic world that we're um, bathing in, that we're totally immersed in, tells us, live your dream. Christ says, take up your cross and follow me through a process of denying self, focusing on others, and then actually living and giving yourself for others. Yeah, I don't think we quite grasp that, how radical what he's talking about is. 
So there's little, little, literal need for foot washing in New Zealand. Uh, we don't get a lot of dust on our feet, but there is a great need for serving one another in humble and menial ways. And we've seen it already. We've seen uh, drinks being prepared, dishes being done, working bees cleaning around here. Um, we talked of this morning about making meals. Uh, uh, our, um, the church we were in for, for years were, were masters at shifting house. <laughs> and if anyone was shifting house, probably two-thirds of the church would be there with vehicles and trailers and utes and everything. And the woman would come and they'd be cleaning and stuff while the guys are shifting the pianos down the stairs and that sort of thing. And then there'd be a big feed. And, yeah, we did that really well. Uh, we went to, well, we were in another town. We knew some people there. They were shifting. Rosemary thought, great, somebody's shifting. We're priority, we must be there. Uh, he was shifting his house and his business. And I'm sad to say uh, the man and his wife who had uh, cancer at the time was on chemo with a brain tumour. Uh, Rosemary and I were the only people that turned up uh, until four o'clock in the afternoon and one, one more person, the pastor, turned up at four o'clock. Uh, so that was, that was not our culture and it was a bit of a shock. But I've realised that's kind of the normal, in many ways, the Kiwi culture. Everyone's busy doing their own thing, looking after themselves rather than thinking, hey, there's a lot of stuff to be shifted here. So, lovingly serve one another. That's our first one. I'd better speed up a little bit. Um, lovingly serve one another. That's probably talking within the disciples, within this new Christian community that's going to be established. Uh, you realise they're still in the Old Testament here because uh, Christ hasn't died. Uh, but when going into the New Testament period, he's saying you've got to love one another. First, look after you, your Christian brothers and sisters. But it gets tougher than that. Even though it's radical, it gets even tougher. Lovingly serve our betrayers. Verses 18 to 30. And we've read that the Lord lovingly washed the feet of Judas. Judas was still present for that lesson. He obviously missed the lesson, but he was still there for it. And verse 18 talks about, uh, yeah, one of you is going to betray you. you. Betray me, Christ said. And it's probably cited from Psalm 41, verse 9, speaking of Ahithophel. And this is one of David's closest friends and counsellors uh, who deserted David uh, at his sort of hour of need and went to Absalom. And, you know, the perfect betrayal, the ultimate betrayal is somebody that's really close to us who deserts us at our point of greatest need. And that's what Ahithophel did. That's what Christ's alluding to, what Judas is going to do, desert at the time of greatest need. And yet we've got this response uh, of responding as Christ did in those verses 18 to 31, or 21 down to 31. Um, we'll read it after saying these things Jesus was troubled in the spirit and testified truly truly I say to you 
one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. Now that's John being humble about himself, by the way. So Simon Peter mentioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he whom I give this morsel of bread. And when I have dipped it, sorry, when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas. Pretty clear, isn't it? The son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, Why are you going, sorry, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Judas was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So Judas here is pulling off the ultimate betrayal. Nobody else but God himself knows what he's up to. And uh, yes, he got his money. uh, We talked in earlier verses, talked about Judas, uh, Satan had entered into him. But Judas uh, had also um, had input from Christ as well. He, He had an opportunity to choose who to obey. He chose to take her on his own desires of his own and follow it through. He rejected that leading, that calling of Christ and went the other way. And often we have a defining moment in our life where we can go one way or the other. Judas chose, sadly and tragically for him, to go the other. Yes, Jesus knew before time and uh, everyone knew before time uh, that he would be betrayed. Uh, In a number of places it was prophesied about the silver. Um, but uh, Judas, his own uh, volition was involved as well. So verse 31. Sorry, we finished on that. Oh, sorry. Yeah, so we see Christ's example here, Matthew five forty-four. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Luke six twenty-seven. But I say to you here, you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Luke 6.35, but love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. So now we're talking about lending money to your enemies. <laughs> and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So for this period of time, Yes, we know we've got some enemies out there, some persecutors, but for now we just keep loving them. Uh, That's how the the kindness of God is expressed to them uh, under this period of mercy. And I think of another example, uh, a brother who was stolen from as he tried to help a man travel with drug addictions. Many of you have probably tried to help somebody like that and only being taken advantage of so we will be taken advantage of as we lovingly serve be be pre-warned uh, expect it, take some of the sting out of it 
um, but know that as you serve, yeah, eventually you'll be taken advantage of, um, but yeah, it was going to come. So don't be too choosy about who we serve. Jesus washed the feet of Judas, I'm sure, the same way he washed the feet of the others. Uh, Yeah, we don't sort of pick and choose too much. It's quite normal to want to protect ourselves from betrayal. So in order to protect ourselves, we can try to evaluate other people's trustworthiness. And I think there is a place for that. Uh, We don't sort of totally naively, if you like, cast our pearls before swine. But unlike Christ, we can't know people's hearts. And at times we'll trust people only to feel that real sting and that pain of betrayal. But that's another opportunity for us to glorify God and for God to glorify himself, uh, as we read in the next verse. So don't be too choosy about who we serve. uh, And regarding our hospitality, uh, it's not only to the nice people to everyone. So we've seen two kinds of people uh, love one another, Christian brothers in Christ, if we want to bring it into our modern context, and love those who betray us, love our enemies. It's kind of some people in between that we'll touch on next. Love, lovingly serve those who fail us. And verses 31 to 33, again parting words from Christ. When he had gone out, so when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So again, Christ is alluding to his death. These are his parting words. He's preparing his disciples to enter into a new community of faith under a new covenant. But first, Christ must be crucified and be glorified. So uh, I made a comment before about the... We're still technically in the Old Testament here because Hebrews 9.17 says, For a will takes only effect, takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So until this point, the disciples are still rather powerless. Uh, Christ has been burying everyone under the burden of the law, uh, if they're that way inclined, challenging them to try and keep even a higher standard. And everyone's failed at that from the time of Moses. They failed uh, right through to the time of Christ. But now he's going to start institute his new covenant. And verses 34 to 35 establish the key. Uh, Those words establish the core value or the motivating force for this new community. He says a new commandment, uh, or a a commandment, Paul was talking about that before, I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And so he's now really ramped it up now from uh, Old Testament was love your neighbour, now it's love your enemies, love everyone, and not just as you love yourself, but even higher than that, love as Christ loved us. How does he demonstrate he loved us? He died in our place. Yeah, 
And by this, verse 35, all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So this really is the key passage. Uh, Lynn got straight to the crux of it and identified that passage as the key verse in this whole thing. It's about love, loving one another just as Christ has loved us. So there's our answer. What does he mean by love? Uh, it's expressed ultimately in the crucifixion. How do we love? By loving service. And uh, here we get our answer in verse 34b. And the passage that Hamish read out, Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. That's a continuous ongoing walk as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So again, reiterating that concept. This is what you might think love is. This is what God means when he talks about love. Christ giving himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And love is the evidence of true discipleship. 1 John 4 verse 20 says, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So the, um, the letter of 1 John really drives home this concept that love is actually the true test of discipleship. And we hear a lot about doctrine being important, and praise God it is important in this church. But professed doctrine is not the ultimate test of discipleship. Uh, it's a precursor to it. It's part, probably part of our discipleship. Uh, that biblical knowledge, biblical understanding is not the ultimate test. Lovers. 1 Corinthians 13 brings that out as well. Yes, we're going to need good doctrine to be on the right track and everything else. But at the end of the day, uh, yeah, there's some really... Uh, really bad testimonies of Christians who have really good doctrine, uh, but you don't see love in them. And I would, you know, based on this, we've got to say, well, let's just see. So love is the test. So verse 36, uh, there's a question there. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Peter knows what Jesus is talking about, being glorified. Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. So really that, that question, where are you going, that's answered in chapter 14, which I hope you all get in and study in a couple of weeks' time. And we'll look at that then. And uh, we'll find out where it is that he's going and what he actually meant by that. In verse 37, uh, says, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. That tells me Peter knows what Christ is talking about when he talks about loving service. Uh, Peter's caught on. He's saying, well, yeah, I do want to follow you, and yes, I will lay down my life for you. Only trouble is, at this stage, he doesn't quite have the power to do it yet. He will have the power, and he will lay his life down. Uh, but uh, yeah, he'll mess up without the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So in John 13, 34, uh, we see that, uh, sorry, 38, that, uh, that difference. The, the old covenant and the new love as I've loved you, and, uh, and that involves death, and Peter grasped that. So Peter does go on to blow it. We know he denies Christ three times. Uh, again, Peter's one of those inner circles. And not as bad as Judas's betrayal. Peter wasn't deliberately betraying him, but he did let him down. And what did Jesus do for Peter? What's his response? Again, a really practical response. And this this really connects with us as family and so on. In John 21 verse 9, well, he made him breakfast. Not let down, but he still prepared a, a meal of fish and bread for him on the shore and made him breakfast before he restored him back to his, his uh, former, uh, I guess, shame, shameless state. So, yeah, people close to us, uh, yeah, they'll let us down. Sorry, Rosemary, I'll probably let you down again this week. Um, but she'll probably, oh, I actually make her breakfast, but she'll probably still make me dinner. <laughs> so people are going to let us down, they'll disappoint us, they'll deny being associated with us. What's our response to be? Love them as Christ loved us when we fail him. And there's a flip side here, um, because as I've just said, sometimes we're the, one that, we're the ones that fail. The flip side is know that God still loves us even when we fail him, when we deny him, disappoint, uh, even when we may not say we're not his, but our actions make it look like we're not his. So in conclusion, John thirteen thirty four says a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. And under the new covenant, we see that loving and serving one another includes not just our friends and family, not just those that we're getting on with at the time, but also those who fail us, and even worse, those who betray us. It's more than writing just uh, uh, love in the birthday card. Uh, It's a radical love. It's a humbling love, a self-giving love, even to the point of laying down our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this shocking lesson. Lord, thank you for the impact that it had on the original hearers, and I pray that we would fully grasp the uh, the radical nature of it. It's an extreme change in our approach to others and the way we live our lives. And Lord, yet we know too, that uh, without you we, we can do nothing, we have no power to live this out. Lord, I don't even want to do it in my own flesh, but Lord, we cry out to you uh, to give us that power by your Holy Spirit, and we pray that you would enable us to do this to some degree, to a greater degree tomorrow than we did yesterday. And Lord, we pray not so that we would look like good Christians and uh, be holier than thou, but Lord, so that you might be glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name.